want to start tonight with a sobering and rather alarming statistic that comes from the United States. Uh, out of 110 Christian colleges that belong to the Christian College Coalition in America, only six out of 110, only six of them affirm a literal view of the Genesis creation account. It makes you wonder what it means to actually call yourself a Christian college these days. Because if you simply read your Bible, if you simply open it and read it, and don't import anything into it, there's absolutely no exegetical reason for rejecting a literal interpretation. There is no linguistic reason. There is no textual reason. There is no interpretive reason not to take God at His word. So it makes you wonder, why is it that only 6 out of 110 Christian colleges in the U.S. affirm a literal view of Scripture? Why would so many Christian organizations simply reject what God says so clearly and unambiguously? Why would so many so-called Christian college, colleges abandon in mass the clear meaning of the Word of God? Reminds me of uh, a story, so you'll have to bear with me. I'm going to tell you a story now. Uh, <clears throat> it's a rather famous story by Hans Christian Andersen. Do you know the story? How many of you know what I'm going to say? The, know Debbie knows. She has my notes. Um, the emperor has no clothes. Do you know the story? Two swindlers uh, came to uh, this kingdom, and the emperor was a real clothes horse. He just he, he loved clothes so much he spent a fortune on them. He changed every hour just so he could wear a new suit. And these swindlers uh, convinced him that they could make him the most beautiful suit ever seen on the face of the planet. And the thing about this suit was it had it had a, a magical power. Those who were ignorant and foolish and incompetent could not see the suit. Okay? So the emperor commissioned these guys to, to make this suit for him. So they set up shop and pretended to build this non-existent non suit, right? And they ordered a lot of material in and gold thread and all this stuff. So the king, pardon me, the emperor sends uh, his most trusted advisor to, to check on the status of the suit. Uh, but of course... You know what happened? He can't see it. But he knows if he can't see it, that means he's either stupid or foolish. He's foolish or incompetent. So, of course, he says, oh, it's beautiful. I love it. And he goes back to the emperor and he reports that, oh, it's a beautiful suit. You're going to love it. So the emperor got a little impatient. He sent another advisor. This second advisor, same thing happened. He couldn't see the suit either. But he didn't want to be seen as ignorant and stupid and incompetent. So he, he raved about the suit, went back and told the emperor, how awesome the suit was. So the emperor arranged for a parade through town so he could wear the new, the new suit. And so the, the tailors come and they bring the suit to the king and they're showing it to him. And they're saying, how beautiful, see how beautiful it is. It's awesome. It's great. It's awesome. And the king couldn't see it. And he knew this meant he must be stupid or incompetent or foolish, but he wasn't going to let anybody on. So he said, I love it. And so... He stripped down and he let the, the swindlers dress him in this non-existent suit. And he called in the, the courtiers and the courtiers 
grab the train, the non-existent train of this non-existent suit on this naked emperor. (laughs) And they headed out for the parade. And the crowd cheered. The crowd had heard about the magical powers of this suit. And they cheered and cheered. What an awesome suit it was. And then there was this little boy. He could, he could, you know, he did not care nor know that he would be seen as foolish for simply stating what was obvious. And he said, the emperor, what? Has no clothes. And whispers began to spread through the crowd. And the king, although fearful that it might be true, he just bowed up and continued on in the parade with his, non, with his, his, his courtiers carrying the non-existent train of the non-existent soon on the naked emperor. I uh, think that this story has a great lesson for us. It highlights the, the, the powerful impact of peer pressure, particularly when our intellectual integrity is on the line. Why are there only six Christian colleges in the U.S. affirming what is obviously clear from the text? Why is that so? Could it be peer pressure? Regrettably, it, uh, it seems to hold true for even Christian colleges. The world's opinion carries more weight than God's Word. Of course, this is all the more true in the scientific and academic community uh, where the peer pressure regarding macro-Darwin uh, evolution is, is uh, particularly keen. One uh, scientist I heard, he called it... Uh, a scientific gulag. Do you know what a gulag is? Go look it up. It's good. It's a good word. But but no, it was it was the Russians. The Russians used the gulag to suppress uh, uh, dissidents in uh, in Russia. But this guy called it the scientific. The scientists called it a scientific gulag. Atheistic Darwinist Cambridge professor Richard Dawkins, who I've mentioned to you in the past, I think he sets the tone for the scientific community. He says this. It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. That's the mindset in the scientific and academic community. The message is, if you don't buy what we're selling, you're stupid, you're ignorant, you're incompetent, and you're foolish. But I'm proud to say, I'm proud to stand here at this little bitty church in in Milan, the International Church in Milan, and I'm proud to say that Darwin has no clothes. Darwin and his adherents have no clothes. And I would would even say that theistic evolutionists have no clothes. You cannot read the Bible and pull uh, ages and ages of evolutionary progress out of the text. You have to put it in there. You can't find it in there. And Christians have been all too ready to compromise the very clear Word of God because we don't want to be seen as unsophisticated, as stupid, or as simpletons. That's really what it comes down to because I've told you this over and over. There are no facts for Darwinian, macro-Darwinian evolution. In fact, I heard a scientist say this. You're going to love this. It's fact-free science. Beloved. Do your homework. (laughs) Do your homework. Do your homework. It's fact-free science. I've got a couple of examples for you. Richard, Dr. Richard Sternberg, an evolutionary biologist uh, at Smithsonian Institute, he was forced to resign simply because he raised the issue of intelligent design. 
Dr. Carolyn Crocker, who's a professor of biology at George Mason University, lost her job for simply mentioning intelligent design in the classroom. Tenured professor Dr. Robert Marks at Baylor University had his research website shut down and his grants canceled because of his work in intelligent design. Astronomer Dr. Guillermo Gonzalez, a noted astronomer who has discovered several planets on, his, on the pathway to being tenured, lost his tenure at Ohio State University because he was teaching intelligent design. It is not a level playing field in the scientific and academic community, and you need to know that. You say, well, Jim, why are you telling us that? Because you need to know that. You need to know the bias, the pervasive bias that is in the scientific and academic community. Dissent is not tolerated. Dissent of the idea of macro-Darwinian evolution is simply not tolerated. I know that sounds a little bit like paranoia, but you go do your own research and you will discover that it's true. And I say these things to you because I want you to educate yourself. I want you to be able to stand uh, and, and proclaim the Word of God. I, want you to, I also want you to educate your children because your children will be indoctrinated. They will be indoctrinated. It's your responsibility for those, those of you who are parents and, will, and are planning to have children, not yet parents, but planning to have them, it's your responsibility to educate yourself and to educate your, your children. I told you this once before. This is how important this issue is. Francis Schaeffer, that great uh, Swiss theologian and apologist, he said, if I had 60 minutes with an unbeliever, I'd spend 55 minutes talking about Genesis chapter 1. Because if you can get someone to understand that an awesome God created them, then they'll understand that they're accountable to that awesome God who created them. He says, I'd spend 55 minutes talking about Genesis 1, and I'd spend five minutes talking about the cross. I don't know if that's exactly how I would do it, but I think there's some wisdom. I think there is some wisdom there. Remember what I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Stephen C. Meyer, the Cambridge-educated ed physicist and geologist with advanced degrees in molecular biology and evolutionary theory, he said, science done right, anybody remember? Points to God. It points to God. Every time. Every time. It points to God. I want you to remember that. I'm going to say this to you again. I've said it to you three or four times already. I'm just going to keep saying it until we get out of Genesis 1. Christians must not accommodate unproven unproven and increasingly discredited theories of men when they come to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Christians must not accommodate them. Um, we don't have to do that to maintain our intellectual integrity. In fact, I would say to you that we must do the opposite to maintain our intellectual integrity. We must reject macro-Darwinian evolutionary theory on intellectual grounds. If you'll do the reading, if you'll do the study, you will come to the conclusion that I have to reject this not because I'm a Christian or a literal Bible believer. I reject this because it's fact-free science. It can't stand on its own. In fact, I read an article this week. Uh, uh, evolutionists are, are starting to not agree to debate creationists anymore. They get blown away by the science every time. 
every time. So, I just want to say that to you. We do not have to import uh, macro-Darwinian evolution into Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm going to just keep saying that to you. It's so important. Say, Jim, you're just hammering that. I am hammering that. I am hammering that, and I'm going to continue to hammer that. It's vital that we actually believe what God says, and we proclaim what God says. It's vital that we do that, and that we be able to teach our children. If you will do the reading and take the time to investigate all those ambiguous and oftentimes unintelligible statements cloaked in murky, uh, the murky fog of scientific doublespeak, you will inevitably see that macro-Darwinism for what it is. It's a faith-based worldview. That's what it is. It's a faith-based worldview. Their faith statement is much larger than ours. Their faith statement is that everything came from nothing. Everybody and everything. It just came. It just happened. The, I heard one scientist say, the universe is just something that happens every once in a while. It just happened. Friends, not only that's just irrational. It's illogical. It's insanity. It's utter stupidity. The emperor has no clothes. We need to be able to stand up and say it. We don't need to be afraid to say it. We may be called stupid and, and simple and unsophisticated. Okay. But we have the truth. Our God has spoken. We have the truth. So let's get to the Word of God. Say, so, Jim, you're doing some long introductions in this series. I know. I'm really trying to lay some groundwork for you, for your future, for your children, that you'll fight for their, inte uh, their intellectual integrity because if you don't fight for it, somebody will steal it. And you have to fight for the intellectual integrity of your kids. Let's, let's open the Bible. What we've learned so far in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is that God's awesome. He's the transcendent God. He's the eternal God. He steps out of eternity past and... He creates the time, space, mass universe. He does this ex nihilo. God just speaks and stuff happens. That's how powerful His Word is. He does not need uh, materials nor tools. God just speaks. And the heavens and the earth stand forth. He is indeed El Shaddai, the Almighty Omnipotent God. Last time we were together, we talked about God created light, the, man, the God who dwells in, in uh, unapproachable light. He creates physical light. He speaks it into existence. Verse 5, He called the light day and the darkness night. There was an evening and a morning. One day, we talked about this. How can there be an evening and a morning without the sun? How can we have a solar day without the sun? How can we have light without the sun? The, the sun will not be created until the fourth day. I don't know, God doesn't explain that. And I've told you this before, I'm going to tell you this again. The Bible is not God's explanation. It's not a scientific textbook. God does not explain Himself to His creatures. And God, I think, purposely is interjecting faith into the creation account. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I don't have to know where the light comes from. God says it's there. I believe it's there. This is what it means to be a Christian. <laughs> To be a Bible-believing Christian. Now, I'm not talking about doing church. And I'm not talking about all those false expressions of uh, what is called Christianity out in the world. I'm talking about being a born-again, Bible-believing Christian. That's what I'm talking about. And we stand on the Word of God. We believe the Word of God. We live the Word of God. We proclaim the Word of God. 
That's what Bible-believing Christians do. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what God has called us to do. Verse 6 through 8. Follow along with me if you would. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. Verse 8, And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Let me just make a distinction here. Some people want to make a big deal out of the fact that these Hebrew verbs here, in verse 1 it says God created, and in verse 7 it says God made. Somebody like, some people like to make a big uh, distinction about that. What I simply want to say to you is there is no distinction there. These Hebrew verbs are synonyms. So we don't have to, we don't have to make a distinction there. I think that's important. So what, is, what does it mean? I, I know, notice when Keith read the text, the, the, the word firmament was there. Uh, I, I study and read from the NAS, the word expanse is there. It simply means that the, the, word, the Hebrew word expanse, a translated expanse, simply me, means to spread or overlay. It's used in uh, Exodus 39 when talking about how thinly the gold was hammered over the fixtures uh, in the temple. So what does it mean that God is putting an expanse between the waters that are below and the waters that are above? Simply God is creating a, bree- a breathable atmosphere. I mean, simply that's all it is. God is creating a breathable atmosphere for His creatures. Obviously, the waters below the expanse refer to uh, the water, waters that are covering the earth. But there are some uh, legitimate debates about what it means for the waters that are above the expanse. Now, some contend that uh, prior to the the Noah's Noah's flood, there was a canopy that circled the earth, uh, that no longer does circle the earth, that it uh, remained in place until the flood. They contend that this canopy created like a hothouse effect and created a perfect temperature on the planet. enabled even fallen human beings to live 900 years. We know that many of the uh, pre-flood characters in the Bible, they lived to be 900 plus years. Now, Scripture doesn't explicitly teach that there was such a canopy, uh, but I tend to believe that there was something different about the atmosphere then simply because of the lifespans of those pre-flood individuals. Uh, Noah and his forebears lived lived to be about 900 years old, Noah's son only lived to be about 600 years old. Noah's grandson and great-grandsons lived to be about 400 years old. And Abraham, who was 10 generations away from Noah, only lived 175 years. I think there was a cataclysmic atmospheric change uh, during the flood in Genesis chapter 6. So if you may have noticed that in day 2, it's the only day where the text does not expressly say that the work of God is good. Again, some people try to make much of this. I don't think we need to make much of this. I think it obviously that God's work on day two is good. Uh, it's just merely a, uh, a, a recognition that it is incomplete, that He will finish what He's begun on day two and on day three. At least that's what it seems to imply to me. Certainly what He did on day two is good. You may notice there in verse 7 that it says, And it was so. This is a, a, a refrain that will go all the way through 
uh, Genesis 1. It's in verse 9, verse 11, verse 15, and verse 24. And I think it's, it's important that we notice this. I think it, it's there to connote the fixity of the creation of God. The fixity. Verse 7, He established the heavens. It's fixed. He established the seas, verse 9, in the dry land. That's fixed. Verse 11, He created the vegetation, the trees that reproduce after their kind. That's fixed. Verse 15, The establishment of heavenly bodies. Those are fixed. Verse 24, The creation of living creatures that reproduce after their kind. That's fixed. I think God is simply letting us know that there's an unchanging nature to the fundamentals of, of creation. You know what scientists call uh, the, the laws of nature. The laws of nature really are simply the, word, simply the Word of God as God upholds His creation by the Word of His power. You don't have to be a scientist to understand that there's fixity in the created order. These complex principles... Uh, and functions of physics and astronomy and chemistry and biology and ecology and, and genetics. We know they're there. If we drop a ball, if we, if we drop a ball, it doesn't go up. Have you ever dropped anything and it go up? Have you ever dropped anything and it go left or it go right? Anybody? No, there's a fixity to the law of gravity. Every time you wake up in the morning, did you ever wake up one morning and the sun was rising in the west? Has that ever happened to anybody? Anybody? Okay. Weird stuff happens to Adam a lot. But you're never going to get up. You're never going to get up. And the sun be rising in the west. There's a fixity to what God has done. Every time you have two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, what do you have? You have water every time. There's a fixity to what God has created and to what He has done. It's fixed not by some mysterious laws of nature. They're fixed by the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And there's fixity among the reproduction of species after its kind. Species don't and cannot cross procreate. Frogs have what? Little frogs. Fish have what? Dogs have what? And human beings have what? It's never not like this. It's always like this. Creatures and life reproduce after their own kind. Does anybody know, and I'm going to really talk to you about this maybe in a later sermon, God has programmed it thus. It's called DNA. It's the, it's, the, it's the software inside each cell in your body. And it's awesome. And this is why so many scientists are beginning to run to intelligent design. Because Darwinists cannot explain all that information in the cell. They cannot explain it. They simply cannot explain all that information in the cell. So fish don't magically become reptiles and reptiles don't magically become birds as Darwinists say and, and apes do not inexplicably become men. There is fixity in all that God has created. This week, just a side note, I was doing some research and I, I looked at Ernest Haeckel's famous Darwinian tree of life. It's entitled The Pedigree of Man. Okay? The Pedigree of Man. And you look at the base of the tree and it's an amoeba. Of course, we don't know where the amoeba came from, but there it is. There's an amoeba. 
right? And the, the amoeba, as you go up the tree, it gives way to a worm, and then the worm gives way to a fish, and then the fish gives way to, to apes, and apes give way to man. There you go. That's how it happened, according to, according to the Darwinists. And as I looked at that, I have to be honest with you, I looked at that and I had this visceral response, an intuitive response. This is sheer stupidity. It's sheer stupidity. The emperor has no clothes. And Christians need to be able to stand on the truth of the Word of God and trust their Father and proclaim the truth to a lost and dying world that needs to know there is meaning in their life because they were made by an awesome Creator God. They're not an accident. They're not a grown-up germ. We need to be able to stand up and say it and not be afraid to be called stupid and simple. We need to have the courage to say these things. We need to teach our children these things. You know, I have people say, well, Jim, that's not really that important. You don't need to waste sermon time on that. Wrong! That's where the battle is being fought right now. That's one of the places the battle is fought at. And if you don't run to where the battle is being fought, you're no soldier at all. We need to be able to stand and speak the truth of God's Word. Let the insults come. (laughs) I can tell you from experience. They don't hurt very long. And I'd rather please my God than please men. I would rather please Him. So yes, I'm happy to say that Darwin has no clothes. And again, I'm going to make the assertion that that's an intellectual decision. It's not merely a theological one. If you'll do the reading, if you'll do your research, it's an intellectual decision. We just need to have the backbone to speak the truth. Look at verse 9 to 13. God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the land, uh, the dry land earth. And He, he was gathering the, the waters and He called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then, then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. Verse 12, And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and the trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was an evening. There was a morning. A third day. Skeptics and critics love to, love to ridicule day three of creation because they, they say that these, these massive global tectonic changes are not possible in one day. And then they, they want to say that it's not possible for earth that's been submerged to, to bring forth vegetation in one day. Brothers and sisters, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it to you again. You have to decide if you're going to believe your father or if you're going to believe uh, men. You just have to decide that. You have to decide what you're going to believe. But what I want to say to you is these very same skeptics will tell you that it's no, there's no way that a virgin can have a child. It's impossible! There's no way a man can walk on water. There's no way a man can feed 15,000 people with with a couple of uh, pieces of bread and a couple of fish. There's certainly no way a man can come out of the grave. So if you want to be a naturalist, I have to say to you, you cannot be a Christian. We are radically supernatural. 
Our God transcends the natural. Our God transcends the natural. So if you're going to try to accommodate the skeptics in Genesis chapter 1, you're going to have to accommodate the skeptics in, in, uh, in the Gospels as well. We don't need to accommodate them, beloved. We just need to simply trust our God and believe Him. So you must decide. Are you going to believe what God says or what men say? And I love what El Shaddai keeps saying to us. For all who have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Genesis 18.14 God says, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? You remember when He was talking to Abraham and Sarah and Sarah laughed. I mean, this old woman, she's been barren all her life and God says, I'm going to give her a son and she laughs and He says, Anything too hard for me, God says. Anybody got a response? No. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. Numbers 11.23 uh, the people were crying for meat and there are two million people and God says, I'm going to bring them meat. And Moses said, hey, there's two million guys here. How, how are you going to do that? And the Lord says, is the Lord's power limited? You guys know what happened. You know the end of the story. Jeremiah 32:27. 27. He, uh, God instructed Jeremiah to buy, a, to buy a field signifying the fact that the, the, the captivity would end, the Babylonian ca- captivity would end. God says, is there anything too difficult for me? Brothers and sisters, this is one thing we're supposed to be reading off Genesis 1. Our God's awesome. I can believe every promise He's made to me. I can live every promise He's made to me. I can run with God and never look back. And I I think we have so many uh, Christianettes today in the church. You know, come to church and yeah... It's good and all that, but I'm talking about really running with Christ. I'm talking about really following Christ. I'm talking about really incorporating His Word into your life every single day when you get up to live it huge and to live it in a radical way. God is awesome. He does whatever He pleases. Do you notice in verse 9 that the dry land is there? God just creates dry land. It's not mud. It's not slime. It's dry land. He just does it by divine fiat, by divine decree. Let there be dry land and there is dry land. It's just another evidence of God's infinite wisdom and power. You remember when Job began to question God's wisdom? God came to Job. Do you remember what it was that God appealed to in explaining to Job how infinitely below uh, Job was below God? Does anybody remember what what does God appeal to? The created account, the, the creation account, the, the created order. Listen to what God says to Job, chapter 38, verse 1 and following. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and He said, who, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And then God goes into what we're talking about today, the, the third uh, day of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And God says, Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When God gave birth to the sea. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt on the, and doors and I said, Thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. And then we can go to Proverbs 8. It also speaks to, to the third day of Genesis chapter 1, the third day of creation. 
And in this proverb, it's the personification of wisdom. And listen to what, listen to what the Word of God says. When He, that's God, established the heavens, I was there. When He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when He made uh, firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when He set the sea its boundaries so that the, the water would not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth. Friends, if you've you got problems with Genesis 1, you've got problems with most of the Bible. If you can't stand on Genesis 1, where are you going to stand? Where are you going to stand? Exactly where do you start believing what God says, as John MacArthur says, to the theistic evolutionists? Verse 11 and 12 of Genesis 1, God does what no macro-Darwinist can begin to comprehend, understand, explain, or even offer up a credible hypothesis for. Do you notice? The generation of life from inanimate matter. Darwinists are clueless on this. I uh, actually heard a, a noteworthy scientist being interviewed and he was asked this question. Well, how did life, how did inanimate matter give life, or pardon me, give rise to life? How did that happen? And this guy says, I'm, I'm serious, he says, well, maybe on the back of crystals. And the interviewer pressed him on this. and said, well, what do you mean? How, 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 can, how can life uh, come from off the backs of, of crystals? How, how could that possibly happen? What do you mean? And the guy said, I told you. The scientist blustered a little bit. He said, I told you on the back of crystals. As if that was an intelligible answer. It's sheer stupidity. But God says it would be so, professing to be wise. They have become fools. Science has no realistic, plausible, believable, much less provable hypothesis for how inanimate matter gave rise to life. They simply cannot explain it, much less to consciousness. Science can't get from inanimate matter to the one-cell creature, much less to an insect, uh, a fish, a dog, or a self-conscious human being. They can't do it. If you don't have an almighty God, you have nothing, friend. You have nothing. You have nothing. I just want to share one. Can I share one thing with you? One scientific fact? Of course I can. <laughs> you, always, you guys are always so gracious to me. But I, I just have to say this to you. I want you to think about it. The guy said, now, life came up. Life came up from off, off of a crystal. It happened... The, it just happened off a crystal. I want, you to, I want you to hear about your brain. Your brain. This may be more or less true for some of us. Um, the human brain, 15 billion neurons, each a living unit within itself. It has 100,000 billion neurological connections. I was reading... Uh, I was reading on that this week. That's more connections than all of the electri electrical components in the whole world by a multiple of a bunch, okay? Each cubic inch of brain tissue contains 100 million nerve cells interconnected by 10,000 miles of fibers to other nerve cells. Yeah, I'm thinking the whole uh, hypothesis about life 
uh, springing forth from uh, the backs of crystals needs a little more work. I don't know about you. Bertrand Russell, he was a renowned British atheist, and when he was asked uh, about if, in fact, he did stand before God after he died, and God asked him why he would not believe in him, Bertrand Russell said, uh, because you did not give me enough evidence. Was, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible have to say about that? It's not because God hasn't given us enough evidence. It's because we have suppressed the evidence. Men uh, are guilty of suppressing the truth. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. God makes it clear it's not about a lack of evidence. It's about suppression of it. And let me just read Romans 18, verses, pardon me, chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. And I'm, I'm about done. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against men who suppress the truth. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Do you see why macro-Darwinism is an insult to God? God says, I am known by my awesome created power. And He expects to be uh, revered for it and worshipped for it. And these puny little scientists, these puny little scientists want to spar with this awesome God. It's sad. It really is. But God says, My invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature are clearly seen. David said it perfect. There is evidence of God without and evidence of God within. Uh, Psalms 19.1, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And then you know Psalms 139.14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, David says. Do you realize that? That the evidence of God is without and within. And then David finishes that, that Psalm 139 verse 14 with a beautiful thing. He says, Wonderful are thy works, O Lord, and my soul knows it very well. There it is, Christian. Does your, does your soul know it very well? That you were created by an awesome God, a God you're accountable to, a God you need to be living for and honoring in your life. Does your soul know it very well? Does your soul know that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? Does your soul know it? Because if your soul knows it, friend, you'll, you'll live it. You'll live it. We're called to live this thing. We're called to live it every day big. We're not called to conform to the world. Even to the church, we don't conform to what is called the church. We live God's Word big. Even if nobody else is, we live it big. Trusting in an awesome Creator, God, He is El Shaddai. So tonight, if you're here tonight and you're an unbeliever and you've never come to Christ, I'm going to challenge you. I just point blank going to challenge you to repent of your sin of unbelief because you have insulted your great Creator God. Repent of your sin and come to Christ. Receive the work He's done for you. Repent of your sin of unbelief, unbelieving friend. And if you claim to be a Christian tonight, I'm just going to call you to believe that He is El Shaddai. And I'm going to call you to live like that's true. He has the power to keep every promise He has made to you. And He is a faithful God. He will keep every promise. So here's what I want to leave you with. No more excuses. No more hedging. No more half measures. Uh, from this point forward, we drive a stake in the ground tonight as we celebrate what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross. We drive a stake in the ground and I'm going to live full out for Jesus for the rest of my life. Full out! 
I don't care what anybody else is doing. I don't care if I'm ridiculed. I don't care if it's unconventional. I don't care. I love him. Whatever he says, I'm going to do. That's my challenge to you tonight, Christian. Yeah, I got that all out of Genesis 1. Every bit of it. Because when I go to Genesis 1, man, I, I can't help but get on my face. Man, this is an awesome God. It's an, he's an awesome God. And he expects us to not only believe, he expects us to live it. So let's pray together. Oh, Father, forgive every one of us in this room. I know that I'm sure that all of us are guilty, Father, of settling into a comfortable Christian life. Not that you don't want us to, to have a life of blessing and a life that we enjoy, but you've never called us to sit down in the spiritual recliner. You're an awesome Creator God, an awesome Redeemer God, and you've called us to, to spread the gospel. You've called us to, to be a light on a hill. You've called us to be the salt. Lord God, I pray that every one of us in this room will take that seriously. That we would receive your call, receive your challenge. We'd not let another day go by and live it small. We simply won't do that anymore. We won't conform to the norms of uh, what is expected from a Christian. We won't conform to those norms. We'll simply get into the Word of God and get on our face and get on our knees and ask You, Lord Jesus, what do You want us to do? It doesn't matter what, what uh, everyone says we should do. What do You say? What do You say, awesome God? How can I honor You in my life? How can I honor You in my marriage? How can I honor You in my job? How can I honor You in my church? Help us, Lord God. You know how weak and frail and simple we are. Help us, I pray. Help us to be a mighty people. The people who are serious about lifting up an awesome God, an awesome Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to partake of the table tonight. And uh, we have open communion here. So... All who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have followed Him in believers' baptism, you are welcome to partake of the table with us. Adam will play for a few minutes, and uh, Sarah, and uh, prepare your hearts to partake of the table. And uh, as they play, come up and take the cup, take the bread, go back to your seat. After they finish singing or, and playing, I will read a text and then we will partake at that time, okay? Prepare your hearts to remember and to worship our awesome Creator. Yes, He's on the cross. Yes, He saved us from our sins. Yes, we will be with Him for eternity. And at Thy right hand, O God, are pleasures forever. Pleasures forever. Prepare to worship the Lord. Confess your sin. Put it down. Come and celebrate this awesome thing that Jesus has done.